Welcome to episode 13 of Unsolved Cases and Suspicious Faces. That's Jackie. And that's Izzy, but I think you mean episode 13 and a half. (laughs) Yeah. So listen, we recorded episode 13, right? I went to edit it and the audio was so bad that I did not feel confident or good releasing it. So this 13 and a half. We also made fun of our dad a lot. I'm really sad that that won't see the light of day. I am sad that we lost it. So, sorry, Dad. <laughs> sorry, Dad. Next time. Next time, for sure. And by next time, even this time. So, we were making fun of Dad because I had had a conversation with him where he said that when he's listening, it's really cool because he feels like we're having a conversation. And he tries to join in and he's like, wait a minute. <laughs> this is a radio show. And I'm bringing this up because I had a similar conversation with mom. She told her coworker Ryan, which I won't get into, but her her coworker Ryan. What a dumb name. Hey. Ryan. Hey. Ryan is a dumb name, but not due to that Ryan. (laughs) Her husband's name is Ryan. My mom's coworker Ryan, if you're listening, you should know that every video game character I've ever made is named Ryan is dumb, and I don't mean you. (laughs) <laughs> but she was telling well, him maybe sorry. we'll see How <laughs> wrong? she was telling him that about our podcast and she was like it's 80 percent bullshit and then like 20 percent true crime so i'd like to run this past you i'd like to rename our podcast to the 80 percent bullshit podcast no no i like our name <laughs> i spent weeks coming up with it i'm pretty sure i came up with it yeah, but I was supporting you for weeks coming up with it. You're supporting me from afar. I got you. I got you. I was okay. sending you good vibes. Wow. Send me more good vibes because I have an interesting case. I have a couple different cases. Wait, we can't start talking about cases yet. Oh, we're not to the 80% bullshit part yet? No, no, no. I want to tell you, uh-huh. everyone, we've been talking up, organizing your house, right? Well, it's dangerous. Stop it immediately. Why? What happened? I had to go into medical because I got tendonitis in my wrist from overuse (laughs) because I organized my closet. (laughs) So now my wrist is just in a brace. (laughs) I have to wear it for like 10 days and take ibuprofen to like reduce irritation and all of that. It's such a pain. You heard it here first, folks. Cleaning is dangerous. Don't do it. Don't. Just let it pile up. Make your husband do the dishes. I like it. I like it too. This is a movement I can get behind. (laughs) Dad, are you okay doing the dishes? Dad? Dad, are you there? (laughs) (laughs) See, we told you we'd make fun of Dad. We squeaked it in. (laughs) Squeaked it in. No one was expecting it. Oh, also, Mom said Grandma really likes listening to our podcast, so thank you for telling her about it, Jackie. I have to I feel, feel like I'm corrupting her, Grandma. Yeah, because I've been just dropping f bombs left and right. I'm sorry, Grandma, and I'm you still going to continue sorry, to do that. <laughs> Shame on you, Izzy. Listen, these stories are really fucked up, and I feel like <gasps> in it. that case, I can use the f word, Grandma. Grandma, I got you. I'll yell at her for you. Grandma likes to live a little too. It's okay. I got a new job since we're talking about stuff. So exciting. Yes, I get to go from graveyards twice a week to day shift full time, which is pretty nice. And We're it's bringing uh, you back into the light. 
Yeah, and it's a revenue auditing position. So I'm doing like accounting work and working with spreadsheets so I don't have to deal with the general public. And I'm so excited. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited to not have to deal with the general public. I can't even express it. I keep telling you, you should just go for accounting in college. That's what I've decided to do, actually. What? I am so good at this, Izzy. Give me more of your problems. (laughs) Okay. Uh... Uh, I have this sister who's uh, overly helpful and annoying. I thought you were going to tell me that Ryan's dumb again. And I was going to be oh. like, oh, I can't do anything about that. You married him. <laughs> I don't know. I don't think anybody watched me sign the paper. Oh, God. Um, I'm pretty sure I saw it on video, actually. I, I don't think and you did. You don't know that's what we were doing? Full house. <laughs> oh, are we not talking about that now? Okay. No. Just kidding, everyone. <laughs> <sighs> no, I'm I'm actually really excited. I keep getting frustrated at my current job because it's a front desk job, so I can't leave until the person that comes in after me gets there. Mm-hmm. And I make it a point to be 15 minutes early every day because of that, because I know how much it sucks. And I don't think the person that gets there after me has come in on time once. Wow. Yeah. I, and with my notice in, it's getting really hard to be like, I'll just wait it out. This is fine. And it's it's harder and harder to keep a straight face and not let my annoyance show. Mm. And I don't like being that person. So I'm trying really hard. You have to be that person sometimes. The problem is, is most of the time, the person coming in to cover me and take over is a manager. And? They should be there on time. That's the point. They have a supervisor that will write them up. Then maybe they'd start showing up on time. I think you're incorrect about that. They don't have, like, a supervisor or a building manager or anybody above them? They do, but I don't think they would write them up. Maybe not, but they'd be like, hey, guess what? Actually, just put it in your two weeks notice. Just be like, hey, word for the wise. <laughs> I've been up all night, and I'd like to go to bed. Anyway. Amazingly enough. <laughs> so before I pick which story I want to talk about today, is yours long or short? Medium. There's not a lot of evidence in this one, unfortunately. Well, I'm going to do kind of a long one then. I hope everybody is in a position where they've got a while. Are we hopping into it? I mean, we can. Oh. Do you want to go first this time? Shake things up a bit? For episode 13 that we're recording on, well, I guess it's not Friday the 13th like we planned. Dang it, that would have been so cool. Why didn't we do that? We'll just say it is. Okay, Friday the 13th. It's not Saturday (laughs) the 14th. It's definitely Friday. Absolutely not. No, I think we got a good flow. I think you should go first. Okay, mine are always super exciting, so. I'm hanging on to the edge of my seat. Get ready, folks. It's time for the 20% real stuff. You guys, anyone who follows true crime have probably heard about this one before. Um, Izzy, today I'm going to tell you about the murder of Molly Fish. Well, I follow true crime and I don't think I've heard of this one before. I mean, as you get going, it might become familiar, but... It probably will. I never remember the names, just the stories. Um, I actually had to look this up in our list of ones we've previously done just because it sounded so familiar. And I was like, I know I've heard this before. I think okay. in our side note, I think in our chat that we have on Discord, I'm going to like start pinning the episodes 
That's a good idea. Oh, that is a good idea. Why didn't I think of this sooner? Jackie, you're supposed to be supporting me from afar. Ryan's corrupting you. God damn it, Ryan. Okay. Ryan? I think he's taking a nap. He probably just heard me yell from the other room, and he's going to come in here like, what? (laughs) What did I do this time? (laughs) I'm not mean to my husband. He likes it. His life is so hard. It's not. He likes it. Mom's going to yell at you for being... Mom's going to yell at me. Fun. Like, I'm waiting for the text message. Her, t- her ears are probably tingling. Like, someone's <laughs> being mean to Ryan. This is the story of Molly Ann Fish. In the summer of 2000, she was 16 years old, and she had just started her first job. Oh, she's a baby. She was really young. She started um, at a job most teenagers start at, and she decided to work as a lifeguard. But it wasn't – she wasn't a lifeguard in a pool. She was a lifeguard – at a place called Comins Pond in Warren, Massachusetts. So it's pretty much like a lake, like a beach setting. I didn't know those came with lifeguards, honestly. Most beaches have lifeguards. Oh, okay, I live in Nevada. All right, our beaches don't. <laughs> okay, okay. This one had a lifeguard, and it was Molly Fish. It's June 27th of the year 2000, and her mother drove her to... Coman's Pond, where she worked, and dropped her off right by the lifeguard station. 25 minutes later, the first swimmers of the day showed up, and when police asked them later, they said there was no lifeguard on duty. Uh-oh. When police looked around the lifeguard station, they found all of her belongings, and when they were talking to her mother later, her mother recalled the day before, on June 26th, She saw a mustached man in a white car parked in the parking lot where where Molly's lifeguard post was. That was just sitting there and staring. In her lifeguard station, police found shoes, her shoes, a medical kit, a water bottle, and a police radio. The police have never really been able to figure out what happened in those 25 minutes, but it became pretty clear that In that short period of time, she vanished completely. On June 28th, an article came out in the newspaper, The Republican, and it was talking about the police doing extensive searching of the pond, the woods, and the trails all around the area. They even had a helicopter and police dogs searching, and it was the largest search in the state's history, and they never found anything. Three years later, well, two years later, it's fall 2002. A hunter is kind of in that area hunting, and he finds a blue bathing suit in the woods. That's not where that should be. 
a blue bathing suit in the woods. It's not where that belongs at all. No. Let me say where he found it. It's It was in Whiskey Hill in Palmer, Massachusetts. So a little bit different area than where her where she was lifeguarding, right? So now it's May 2003. So this is six months plus. He doesn't tell anybody that he found a bathing suit anywhere until now. I'm sorry? <laughs> yes. Yes. You just see, so, oh, hey, that's a blue bathing suit in the woods where a bathing suit doesn't belong. Huh, that's a little odd. Oh, well. Yeah, I mean, if it was on the beach, I get it. Maybe somebody just lost it. But in the middle of the woods, that's a little weird. Suspicious. Right? Yes. Am I crazy? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe I can't say what I would do in that situation. So I can't like blame the guy for not telling it, like telling the police. I probably would have asked a few other people if they thought it was weird. But this guy doesn't say anything for six months. I guess I'm, I guess it depends on if he knew that there was a missing girl in the area or not. Yeah. Because having yeah. the information that there's a missing girl, yeah, it seems very odd to find a blue swimsuit out in the woods. But I mean, a lot of people, unfortunately, illegally dump in the woods. So, yep. I mean. That's true. Okay. So now in May 2003, he mentioned it to a guy named Tim Mc, McGinnon. I'm probably saying that really wrong. But Tim McGinnon contacts the compl- contacts the police when he hears about the bathing suit. So the police go to that area where the hunter said he found it, and they find Molly's body just five miles away from her family home and a significant distance away from her lifeguarding station where she worked. I know I talked about that article in The Republican that talked about the police searching the pond. But in that same article, Molly's absence is originally described as a disappearance because they didn't know if she just walked away or ran away from her work or was abducted. The same article has a friend of Molly's on there who says he didn't think she should have been working alone. He said a middle-aged man in a white Chevy Corsia, Corsa, Corsa? That no one knew had been seen hanging around in the parking lot in recent days staring at Molly, the same person that her mother, Maggie Bish, would see. So she talks to a sketch artist. Based on that sketch, the police talked to a few different people, and one of them was a man named Rodney Stanger, who used to fish and hunt in that area. In 2010... He was arrested and sentenced to 25 years in prison because he had stabbed a woman in 2008 to death. He killed her. I don't think, I've never seen anything that says Molly was stabbed. So I think normally if it's like a serial killer or somebody who does it a lot, they tend to try to keep the same MO. Well, it depends on if they're just starting out because MOs can change. That's true. But I think generally, yeah, you're right. Every time the police go to interview him in prison, however, he denies any and all involvement in the Bish case. If there's hope for him to be released from prison, I could see why he wouldn't admit it. But, you know, people are weird. Yeah. Stanger was also known to have access to a white car similar to the one seen the day before Bish's disappearance. But he has still not been charged. 
because there's no evidence, right? In November 2011, a man named Gerald Badassoni was named as a suspect in the case. He had served time in prison for repeatedly raping a teenage girl in the early 1990s. When the newspaper said that he was a, a suspect, he tried to kill himself in prison. He had apparently been in the area where her body was found, and he also resembles a sketch of the man her mom saw in the parking lot the day before Molly disappeared. So once he was named a suspect, the police and the Bish family asked for DNA testing to be done, and they sent the DNA evidence to Texas. Nothing ever came of that, though, and Gerald Badassoni died in November of 2014, and there have been no arrests in this case at all. No official ones, because they just don't. I There's mean, just... it says there's DNA evidence, so maybe eventually. Maybe, hopefully. But Massachusetts is not a state that it's, we've talked about it before. It's called familial DNA matches. Mm-hmm. Where you go through a DNA database and it's not the exact person you're looking for, but it's close enough to it that it might be a relative of the person who pops on the database. The police can still use that officially to look at the relatives of that person to try and figure out who it really is. It's illegal to do in Massachusetts, though. So I'm assuming it would also be illegal in Massachusetts to do the um, other type of DNA testing using the commercially available kits, like 23andMe. But I'm not a lawyer. I don't know. I do know nothing's ever come from that. If you counted the years right, you'll have found out that it's been 20 years since her disappearance. So her family held a tip drive and got information that was helpful. It's only been a few months remember so nothing's really coming to the light from that but her sister said there have been people who might require some scrutiny that have been brought to her attention so they have hired several pis or who pis who have just offered their assistance to the family and in an effort in an effort to try and help solve the case again nothing's really come up so but the family after her disappearance, worked so hard to try and help other people from going through the same thing that they did, they founded the Molly Bish Center and Foundation. The Molly Bish Center for the Protection of Children and the Elderly is what it has turned into. It offers assistance to families whose loved ones are missing. So they, they provide Child identification kits for families. They take a picture and fingerprint children. So if they go missing, they have a piece of ID for the police, which I think, if I recall correctly, mom had us do when we were living in Redmond, right? You remember that? I think so. The little, little, the little cards we had with their little picture. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think we did it at like a, I thought it was like a community event that we got them on. We'll have to ask her. But that is such a good idea because. Little kids don't have, like, you have their school pictures, but if you don't buy them every year or something, you don't really have anything to give the police when they're missing, so. So, 
that is kind of the end of the story, unfortunately. We're basically just waiting for a new suspect to come into the light that's viable. Yeah. I'm hoping one day, one day we'll solve it. Hopefully. I don't if, know. if they have DNA evidence, there's definitely a chance. There is a chance, yes. So my sources real fast was an article by Kim Ring on the Telegram and Gazette. And the other one was an article by Patrick Johnson on MassLive.com. Well, that was a good story, Jackie. Uh, I also have a pretty good one, if I do say so myself. Uh, this takes place on Saturday, October 22nd, 1996 in Tallahassee, Florida. The 17-year-old daughter of the Sims family, Norma Jeanette, returned home after a night of babysitting to find her parents and sisters murdered. What? Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. Yep. And when you're babysitting, you're always worried about something happening to you and the kids. Yep. But she and returned home, home to, f- well, her parents and sister injured is more like they it. They were alive? I'll, I'll tell you more. Oh, God. Okay. Norma was babysitting for a family that attended a Florida State football game. Mom and Dad, I need you to not go to any of those. <laughs> when the game ended and the family returned, Norma returned to her family's home. When Norma entered, the TV was on, but no one was gathered around it as she had expected. She began walking through the home trying to find her family. She eventually entered the bedroom of her parents and discovered her father, mother, and her youngest sister. Her father, Dr. Robert Sims, who is 42, was lying atop the comforter on the bed, blindfolded, and shot once in the head. On the floor, Yep. Jesus. On the floor, she found her mother, Helen Sims, who is 34, bound, blindfolded, and shot twice in the head and once in her leg. Diagonal to her mother was her sister, Joylyn, who was 12. 12. I'd like to say one more time. Her sister, Joylyn, who was 12 was still in her nightgown. She was shot in the head once and stabbed six times in the abdomen. Her underwear was pulled down and there was evidence that she had been molested. Jesus Christ. Both of the parents were still alive. Robert died before arriving at the hospital and Helen survived for nine more days, but she never woke up. The attack couldn't have happened long before Norma returned home and a neighbor reported hearing screams at about 10.45 p.m. that evening. Right away, robbery was ruled out as a motive for the murders, as there was no evidence of anything being moved around or stolen. But the sister, I'm sorry, the sister survived? No, sister, the sister was dead when Norma got there, but the parents were still alive. Excuse me. Police searched through the woods behind the Sims house and drained a small lake that sat at the bottom of a nearby hill in hopes of finding the murder weapon or evidence, but nothing ever came of the searches. It is believed that whoever had murdered the Sims had planned it and was comfortable in the areas they had spent time cleaning the crime scene. The authorities believe that it could have been someone that was comfortable being seen in the neighborhood without raising suspicion. The first suspect was Pastor C.A. Roberts. Helen had worked for him at the First Baptist Church, but she had quit her job a few days prior to the attack. The issue with this suspect is that he had been at the football game that evening. He was seen during both halves of the game by many witnesses, and video footage had even placed him there. However, people in the community were so shocked that this pastor could have done it that he eventually ended up having to move away and leave the area because so many people were harassing him, which is kind of sad if he didn't do it. The next suspects are really who I'm going to focus on. 
They were a couple that lived in the neighborhood. Mary Charles LaJoy, is how I think it's pronounced, who was 19 at the time, was described as being obsessed with death and had even broken into funeral homes on many occasions. That's weird. Mm-hmm. Her boyfriend, Vernon Fox Jr., who was 21 at the time, was a known peeping Tom and was seen peeping on Joy, the 12-year-old, a week before the murders. That's weird. Mm-hmm. Jesus. In the 1980s, Mary went to authorities and suggested that Vernon, who was her husband now, was responsible for the murders. Police were questioning why she would turn him in, but realized why after she kept asking questions about the reward money. Hmm. There was plenty of suspicion on both of them, however, as they kept giving conflicting statements to the police, but no hard evidence linked them to the crime. Because this was before, like, DNA and stuff. In fact, it didn't come out that Joy had been molested until years after because that kind of thing was kept quiet in that day and age. Mm-hmm. Mary stated that she remembered going to the Sims' house that night, but doesn't remember why. Uh, what? Why would you just randomly go to somebody's house? Well, that's a great question. Vernon Fox Jr. has denied all claims, but there's a website, a blog, that reports on true crime, much like we do, called IDidItForJody.com. And they did this story on their blog, and I'm going to read you some of the comments because guess who posted about the murders? In the comments, uh, a lot. Oh, God. Oh, God. Vernon Fox Jr. himself. Wow. So, I copied and pasted these comments into a Word document, and it took up 117 pages. Uh, so, I'm going to read mostly the comments just from Vernon, and I managed to get it down to 18 pages, but I really want to keep them all in because, pro tip, if you are the main suspect in a murder, even if they don't arrest you for it, don't go online and comment on it. Just pro tip for everyone. Uh. So in January of 2016, shortly after this blog article was posted, Anonymous, who's actually Vernon because the spelling mistakes and wording stay consistent afterwards, posted, how old was the criminology professor in 2001 when he passed? 65, 70, 80? Has anyone entertained the thought that the renowned professor was the murderer? That the cover-up or conspiracy was to protect him? Knowingly or unknowingly. The professor mentioned here, by the way, is Dr. Fox, who's Vernon's father. Uh, okay. If he was that what? smart, perhaps he could, one, get away with murder. Two, no people might suspect his son or even point in that direction if necessary, knowing evidence would never be found or linked to his son, dot, 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 legally. Three, have others in their career advancements in law enforcement... Oh, I'm sorry. Three, have just enough clout and or pressure to intimidate anyone who would actually start investigating his son. Four, intimidate others in their career advancement in law enforcement, knowingly or unknowingly, leaving them incapable of ever conducting a proper investigation of him or his son due to fear of ruining their careers if wrong or just unable to prove anything prosecutable. Hmm. Also, he would have known the Sims, dot, 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 Board of Education, he may have been allowed inside, no forced entry, as reported. Perhaps Joy's clothes were only staged in an attempt to lead investigators to a pedophile or dot, 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 okay. weird son. How old was this professor in 1978? Was he still teaching at FSU? 
The female so-called half-confession after a recent divorce may have been nothing more than, and then it cuts off. So as you okay. can see, posting as anonymous, Vernon tri- tries to place blame on the father because the article mentioned Vernon Fox Jr. and his girlfriend, Mary Charles, as possible suspects. Immediately after that, someone says, Hi, Vernal. And that's when Vernon starts using his real name. And he has said after the fact that, yes, these were his comments. So then Vernon Fox comments, Mary Charles LaJoy was trying to use her psychic powers to claim the reward. My scheduled alimony payments had ended and she needed money. It did not work because Larry knew that she and I were at Lover's Lane at the time of the murders. She let me out of her car on Gibbs near Stiles at 11.07 p.m. on the night of October 22nd, 1966. And I can testify to that in court because I looked at the clock just before I got out of the car. I started walking home and a Dodge Valiant with three white men and it stopped, opened the rear passenger door for me to get in, and then realized I was not the man they were looking to pick up, and then drove towards Tharp on Gibbs. I can testify to seeing that in a court of law, and there will be no evidence to the contrary because it is true. That happened at around 11.10 p.m. Also, I arrived home at 11.15 p.m. that night. I looked at the clock on our stove, so I can also testify to that. It's not possible to refute the, in a court of law because it is true. These facts alone yeah, make it man. impossible to establish even the most basic case against either Mary Charles LaJoy or Vernon B. Fox Jr., let alone both of us. Nobody recalls that Dr. Fox was an assistant warden and prison psychologist at the State Prison of Southern Michigan. He has no experience in law enforcement, crime scene investigation, or detective work. He was a corrections treatment expert. People know he was a criminologist, but do not remember his area of expertise. So right away, one, at the time of this, this murder was 50 years old. So the fact that he can recall exact times is a little suspicious to me, at least. Two, he's making a lot of claims that are unfounded, like how Mary Charles used psychic powers to claim the reward, which was never (laughs) mentioned anywhere else. Three... In his previous comment, he's trying to throw his father under the bus, and then here he's clearing his father's name because he's actually using his own name. It gets weirder and weirder. Are you ready? Are you buckled? Are you good to go? I'm I'm buckled. So if these sound like I'm rambling, I am reading these literally verbatim. So that's why. Then Vernon Fox says, My dad did not have access to a thirty-eight, and neither did I. That alone makes it impossible for either of us. I'm reading it like he's a valley girl because that's how I think he is in my head. And then someone named Always Connected comments, I saw you under the streetlight looking at the house. I know you remember, which is odd. A lot of people, I will say before I continue, a lot of people from the area that were there at the time ended up kind of commenting and attacking Vernon. I'm not going to read all of it, but it gets intense again. If you're a suspect in a murder, don't go online and comment about it. So Vernon B. Fox Jr. then says, I had no idea the meaning of this comment. It seems that Mary Charles made statements that I did such stuff. It is not true and has no basis in fact. The undercover dog patrols would have caught anyone who roamed our neighborhood at night. Nobody was caught roaming our streets at night. Nobody stood under a streetlight. It is just made up nonsense. Perhaps a character on a TV show did such stuff? People treat this like I was a character on a TV show. I am not. I am a real person. 
If I could slip into your house at night through locked doors, murder everyone in the house, and slip away without a trace like a super criminal, then people would be more cautious about what they say. But their actions tell us that nobody believes I am such a dangerous criminal. So he's threatening people right now. He then continues... My grandson's juvenile and reform school records are not very different from my dad's records. It's just that Dr. Fox's records are not readily available on the internet. Another thing they had in common was Dr. Fox's real father met him while Dr. Fox was in reform school, but my grandson's father remained unknown in spite of multiple attempts at DNA matching. I would also like to point out at this point that there is no comments in between these. He's just rambling. Those who believe Dr. Fox influenced the investigation are wrong. He couldn't even save himself from DUI convictions. The night of October... Oh, this is where it gets interesting. So he gives his take right here on what happened, and I just want you to try to follow the best you can, okay? Okay. The night of October 22nd, 1966, Mary Charles, yes, it is pronounced as if it was one name, picked me up at the nearby park. My parents did not allow me to see her. We went to a movie and then to a lover's lane where we had sex in the front seat of her mother's car. She then drove up Tharp Street and turned north on Gibbs. She left me at Stiles a little after 11 p.m. and I started walking home. I had walked about half a block when I saw a car on Gibbs that was about four blocks north from me. It came slowly towards me. When it got close to me, the four-door Valiant stopped and the right, deer, I'm sorry, the right rear door was opened for me to get in. I saw three white men in the car, but it was dark and I was frightened. Someone said, wrong one, not him. The door closed and the car drove away. I could not have identified anyone. I walked on home. The next morning, an investigator spoke to me in our living room. I told him my story and told him what clothes I was wearing that night. I offered to give him those clothes, but he declined. I was very afraid that my dad would find out I was having sex with Mary Charles. A few days later, I took a polygraph test and I answered every question truthfully. Some of the questions were about stealing goods from stores and others were about taking money that didn't belong to me. I truthfully answered no to those questions. I did not know that these were supposed to be lies, but they were not because they could not see any differences among my answers. The lie detector could not tell that I had told the truth to every question they had asked. The test was invalid. Here's what happened. A hit team of three killers and one driver drove north on Gibbs and at 10.30 p.m. let the three armed killers out of the four-door Dodge Valiant. They, They have to have a baseline... For a lie. So they ask you, like, a question you're supposed to lie to, or, um, so they can see how your bottle, see how your body responds to lying, and they have something to compare it with. Because if you're saying the truth the entire time, all of your, if you're saying, like, a truth or a lie the entire time, the way you're saying it, your stress levels aren't going to change. They're so, all going to be pretty much similar. So. so isn't it weird then that he would not lie on any of the questions he was supposed to lie on? Because I could only assume that they would be clear. Right? Yeah, so it is weird because they should have asked him to lie on several questions. And if they didn't make that clear, then they're doing it wrong. But it sounds like this guy isn't the sharpest tool in the tool shed so they could have explained it to him and he could not have been following directions or he could have done it to uh mess up the test or something that's what my theory is but anyway here's what happened are you ready 
Are you ready? This shit gets wild. Okay. Here's what happened. A hit team of three killers and one driver drove north on Gibbs and at 10.30 p.m. let the three armed killers out of the four-door Dodge Valiant, Valiant at the end of the backyard of 644 Vonsale. So he's thinking a, a hitman team went and got this middle class family in a quiet neighborhood. I'm telling you, there's something <laughs> not correct about. Well, I have to say, I think there's something wrong with this guy. Like, he's if you just trying to cover up that he committed a murder. <laughs> the men. Something like that. <laughs> the men walked across the grass to the Sims front door. The door was unlocked, and they just burst in and gained control. They took Mr. Sims to the bedroom and killed him. Then they took the girl in there and killed her. I bet it was a single shot behind the right ear ported towards the center of her brain, the cerebellum. That would be the mark of a professional hit. A neighbor heard screams at about 10.45 p.m. That would have been Mrs. Sims fighting for her life. Two shots subdued her and the final shot behind the right ear towards the center of the brain. The fact that nobody heard shots says that the hitman used a thirty-eight revolver with a silencer. The other men were armed with similar weapons. The five shots fired indicates that the hitman carried a six-shot revolver with a hammer resting on an empty chamber while the gun was holstered. Also, no brass was found at the scene, a sure clue that a revolver was used. No gun was found because the professional hitmen took their weapons with them to whatever city they came from. At 11 p.m., two of the three hitmen met the driver on Gibbs as scheduled. The third man was staging the crime scene for the cops. It took more time than planned. They went north out of the neighborhood and circled back, going south on Gibbs. They were looking to pick up the third killer, but they found me on Gibbs near Stiles by mistake. I was home before they circled back and found the man who staged the crime. I am thankful to be a suspect. It saved my life by making it unnecessary to hit me, too. I'm alive today because of it, and it has caused me no problems in finding jobs or ladies to love me. I couldn't identify those men then, and I cannot oh identify them now. God, Izzy, you're <laughs> just going to brush over that? What is wrong with this My guy? dad never allowed guns in his house. I never had access to a gun. I was never at the Sims house, and they were never in mine. I do not know them, and they did not know us. So, this man, one of the main suspects in this crime, thinks that a 42-year-old person on the Board of Education, his wife, and his child were murdered by Hitman. <laughs> a professional That's team ridiculous. from a big city. <laughs> it's just this ridiculous. This is like so frustrating. It's so outrageous. It's so outrageous. And the thing is, that I would like to point out. Uh, Vernon Fox lived right next door to them. Wow. <laughs> this is a quiet neighborhood in Tallahassee at this time. This was the first big murder or anything like that to have happened. In fact, there was a quote. I don't know who said it. I, I thought I had it written down, but I don't. This said, like, this was the day that Tallahassee lost its innocence. <laughs> but it was a team of hitmen. And uh, I'm one page down out of 18. This continues for a while. I just really want to paint a picture. And he's admitted that these were his comments. I just want to paint a picture of how not to try to convince people you didn't commit a murder. He continues. Are you ready? <laughs> You're not going to tell me all... 16 pages are you because I'm going to summarize most of it 
I'm gonna. There, it gets more interesting. This is not. This is not all of it by any means. Uh, so he continues for a couple comments, saying like how like it could have happened. But then someone named Friends of Sims, who I highly. Well, I, I won't tell you who I think it is because I want you to um, go into this with a clear mind. So she sa- they say, excuse me, Vernon, what kind of gangsters need three hitmen to kill a regular suburban couple and a 12-year-old? Dr. Sims wasn't a Navy SEAL. And how could these professional killers mistake you? They had their headlights on. You said so. So did your girlfriend. So they could see you weren't their colleague. Explain why three hitmen... One to drive, one to read a map, one to go in the house. Your theory makes no sense. You know you did it. You know you watched them from the banana tree between your backyard and the Sims. Not Hitman. I'm sorry. No Hitman would have known about that spot. You were the only person that could have hidden there. You were the only person who wouldn't have worried about being seen by the occupants of 644 Seal, your residence. You rode around with your girlfriend in her little white Chevy, laughing at the cops, they drained Styles Pond. You knew the knife wouldn't be there. You enjoyed making fools of the cops, didn't you? You stalled taking the polygraph. You wouldn't put the chess piece on. You were scared of the poly and you knew it. I was in Valiant that night. I saw you walking on the street that night. You weren't home at 11.15 like you told the police. You were scared someone saw you. You were right. Why don't you call FDLE and confess before they match the DNA to your girlfriend? So, this comment comes in a little heavy i think uh straight up saying i was there i saw you you're a liar uh what do you think before we continue um, i think it's his second personality coming out you think it's him you think he's arguing with himself second personality or it's his father well, his father said at this point or it's the girlfriend. Somebody I think it's the girlfriend. <laughs> because, but in all his stories, he was walking around alone. So how could his girlfriend have seen the headlights, too? It just, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, so, this, I think the kids call it tea. This tea continues. Am I right? Is that what the kids call it? This drama continues. Yeah, this is the tea. Vernon claims in this next comment that there was no banana tree in his backyard that was on the side yard next to the TV antenna. And if I wished to look at the Sims house, I could look out the picture window of my bedroom. There was no place to hide in our backyard, only grass. And then he continues with his, quite frankly, asinine theory of what happened. I hope I'm using that word correctly. Four men were... Four men were sent after Mr. Sims, one driver to drop them off in my backyard and come back to pick them up at 11 p.m., and three men to gain access to the entrance quickly and overcome the loaded shotgun that Mr. Sims kept because he was afraid of such an attack. Mm. Mr. Sims was better prepared for an attack than most people are today. He would have been better prepared if he carried a pistol. So, pause. That's weird. The first thing I'm noticing, if... Vernon Fox and his family did not know the Sims and the Sims did not know him. One, how did he know he had a shotgun? Two, how did he know he was repaired? And three, why would he assume that it was a hitman hitman team? Yep. (laughs) 
It's just, you know how they say, like, if you add in too many details, that's a sign that you're lying? Um, we don't need too many signs here. <laughs> but, yeah. I would like yep. to continue with his theory. Four men were sent after Mr. Sims. One driver to drop him off. And, oh, I already said that. <clears throat> the third hitman wore dark clothes and was a new member of the team. Then he could have resembled me enough to cause a mistaken identity. It was a dark night, and I was on the shadow of that large tree between Gibbs and the sidewalk, which I was on. I was not in the full light of the headlights. I was at the side of the car when they opened the passenger side back door for me. The missing team member needed more time to complete his task. The other two joined the driver at 11 p.m. on schedule, left the neighborhood, and returned five minutes later to pick him up. His job was to set the crime scene up to look like a sex crime. One man was a specialist on gaining entry quickly through locked doors. Jesus Christ, <laughs> Izzy, I don't want to hear any more. Tell me everything. One man was an efficient killer who knew how to destroy a brain, and one man had studied the area, its roads, escape routes, and was the driver. He knew that he could not see a car on Gibbs dropping men off at the end of our backyard. Dark clothing would make it nearly impossible to see them approaching the Sims' house through the grass in our backyard. The car was probably a rented car from the airport. The game and fair would have given plenty of cover for that. Mary Charles had dropped me off and continued to Stiles towards her home, and I walked north on Gibbs towards my home. Mary Charles There's could not have like seen that car at headlights. Someone who's like seriously mentally ill. I'm telling you, this is a man who's trying to come up with an alternative theory to hide a crime he committed. One, how, I just, I don't understand how he could know the hitmen well enough to know what their roles were. I mean. If this is true, which it's not. Yeah, exactly. He's like, there's four of them and these are all their roles and these are what they were wearing and these are their names and credit card information and also their mother's maiden names. <laughs> their firstborn currently lives in. <laughs> it's just, that's why I have all these because as I'm going through it, I'm trying to like pick the ones that are like the most damning, but all of them are. He said that he was slightly worried they would find the jackknives that he had lost as a kid camping in the Stiles Pond that they drained. And he was worried that they might find the large hunting knife I had lost there years earlier. Which is odd. Because... Yeah, but they were shot. I mean, I know the girl was stabbed, too, but... Right. Well, a piece of evidence that comes out later in these comments is that apparently Mary Charles and Vernon were in her car watching them drain the pond and they had bugged Mary Charles's car again this is alleged this is just in the comments so take it for what you will but Vernon does confirm it later but and apparently they were laughing at the authorities draining the pond saying that they wouldn't find the weapons but wow you know uh he continues on to say that my DNA could have been found in Mary Charles that night and in Odessa that night and the night before. Uh, he was never sexually fixated on that ugly little Sims girl. Uh, and continued to talk about how he usually has sex with older women. Which I think calling her a little ugly girl, as many people thought in comments that I did not include, is a little... Um, 
what's the phrase I'm using for? Uh, in poor taste, I think. Mm. Something else I would really like to call attention to in this comment is he says, Larry Campbell was not interested in the truth about the Sims murder. He only wanted to see my body cramp, twist, jerk, and smoke as the electric current cooked my body alive. You were just like him. To hell with the truth. Let's fry VBF Jr. not mention his name or pay attention to evidence which shows that he is not involved. This is important because far, far later on in the comments, mind you, these comments went uh, on for two years. He says, let me find it. Uh, I can't find it. It's in here somewhere. But he basically says that Larry Campbell was a good man and he was an important part of solving the murder and he did a good job. But he just insulted him and said he was not interested in the truth. He just, he keeps, he keeps contradicting himself over and over and over again which is why he was one of the main suspects is because he and mary charles's stories kept changing Mm. friend of sims comments again and it gets even more dramatic they say you're the only person that describes joy sims as ugly the only person well i take that back you're the only person to say such a thing besides your former wife charlie Did Joy not want to talk to you? Did she avoid you? Did she spurn you? Was she creeped out by you like the other little girls in this neighborhood that knew you watched them while they played outdoors? Because what you said about her is horrible. No normal person would say that about a child who was brutally murdered, stabbed, and left exposed as she was. You must have really hated her. Either you hated her or you are very, very sick. No other suspect said anything hateful like that. I think that is very telling. Why would gangsters kill this family? Did Mrs. Sims hit the wrong note on the piano at church one day? Did Dr. Sims forget to give a waitress her tip? What did they do to anyone? You and your girlfriend seem to be the only people that had a problem with the Sims. Charlie's disdain for them is evident from her video interview. Yours is evident from your comments about an ugly girl not worthy of your interest. You say here you didn't know the Sims, yet you claim Dr. Sims ran over your dog. People remember you being upset about that. Do you remember that? So, he then says he didn't have a dog, and that's what he didn't hate Dr. Sims because of that. Uh, he then defends the ugly little girl as it was a joke in poor taste referencing a it referred to the punchline of an insensitive joke about a hillbilly dad explaining to his son what a virgin was there was a hillbilly family which practiced incest but no formal family member would have sex with the ugly little seven year old sister so the dad explained that a virgin is an ugly little seven year old girl which is a terrible terrible joke and you probably shouldn't say that when trying to explain why you didn't kill someone Right? Right. Thank you. So, I'm going to skip forward a little bit. Do you remember how he said there wasn't a banana tree in the backyard, but there was in the side yard? Mm -hmm. Well, in this comment, he says, okay, I will tell you again. There was no banana tree in the backyard of 644 Vonsal Avenue. First of all, the banana tree is not a tree. It's a clump of plants which forms a circle. But he said there was a banana tree in the side yard earlier. He then reconstructs Mary Charles' psychic vision that uh, she apparently told the cops to turn him in, which goes on forever and is, quite frankly, more incredible than the other stuff he said, but I won't go into it. He says in all caps, 
I had nothing to do with the Sims murders. I had nothing to do with the Sims. I did not spy on little girls. There was never a report of me going to anyone's house uninvited. Any person who does that should be arrested and jailed for at least 90 days. In fact, none of the list of neighbors you gave ever invited me to a backyard cookout, much less to their dining room table for supper. None of them ever talked to me at any time. We are peace-loving people. We detest killing, even as a penalty for crimes. Which is funny, because he threatened to kill people (laughs) earlier in his comments Mm. so it just pretty much continues on like this he continues to try to defend himself he contradicts himself constantly like with the banana tree he says there's a banana tree and then he says it's not it's just a circle of plants and then he later says that he didn't go to a lover's lane he was just teasing everybody he actually went to a place called dog lake so he's lying some more which Really isn't that surprising. Yeah. And then I would highly, highly recommend anybody go to this I did it for Jody.com and look at all these comments because it's a wild ride. He talks about his love life with Mary Charles. People that lived in the area are pretty much telling him he's full of shit. I know what your house looked like. You're lying. I know that you got in trouble for peeping before we were in the neighborhood. We were young at that time. And he continues to deny everything. That friend of Sims person, who I highly suspect still is Mary Charles, says that Mary Charles lives in Jacksonville now. So they clearly know of the people. Again, this is all on the Internet, so it could be just completely fake. But Vernon Fox, his comments at least are real because he has said before that this is real. So there's one point that I would like to point out, and I don't know if I already said this. Where someone named, I saw you under the streetlight, said, a few months after the murder, you were there across the street from my house. I was in the front yard when you noticed me. You left hurriedly between the Sims and the Shattuck's house. It was you. Vernon B. Fox says, I wish you had shot whoever it was and killed them. Then we would know who it was. It was not me. Which is funny because in his earlier comments, he states that he is against violence and he's against killing of any kind. Even lawful killing by the police department. Another thing that he says that says that maybe he's okay with violence is people who make false accusations against the innocent will burn in hell for eternity. There is no evidence to exclude the possibility that the killers were the three men who were dropped off by a car on Gibbs, walked to the house, or were picked up by a car on Gibbs after the murders. And he says that he turned in his DNA and we would get it back in a few months, which is shortly before he just stops commenting for several months. And then he pops back on and says, in case you haven't heard, there is no DNA recovered from the crime scene evidence. So there was nothing to check my DNA against. So if there was no DNA, why would they ask for his DNA? Yeah, that's weird. He goes back over his story again. Mary, But he says, Mary Charles and I were at the Perry Highway drive-in that night. After the end of the movie, while the credits were running, we left to go back to Parkside, which is not Dog Lake where he said he was. He said they arrived in Parkside after the murders, and then we had the misfortune arrive as the killers were looking for the third killer. Again, goes into the hitman. And then he says, I hope this isn't too confusing for you. Mm. And then he, this is the last page, I promise. So he says, they sent a private detective to talk to me on Monday after the murders. I talked with them in my driveway, away from other people. I told him that I was too startled to identify the men, and the police did not believe me anyway. He said he was wanting the reward money that was sure to come. Since the cops didn't believe me and other neighbors told him that they believed that I did it, there was no need to kill me. He believed this private detective 
to clarify, was sent by the hitman. Besides, I only saw some men in a car and could not connect them to the murders. If they had killed me on Gibbs, they would have left a trail for the cops to follow. Me being a suspect was a big advantage for them. Law enforcement has spent a lot of time trying to find evidence against me. It must have amused them. So I guess I will wrap up here. <laughs> you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at UCSF Podcast. You can send us... You're not going to do your things oh, we learned or whatever I guess, thing you okay. like to do. You're right. The takeaway. The takeaway. <laughs> so the takeaway from these stories, I'd say, the thing that we could really learn from them is... If your 16-year-old crazy people. <laughs> if your 16-year-old is being creeped on or any of your children is being creeped on by a strange man, get them away. Get them call away. The call the police. Call the police. Call the FBI, call SWAT teams, call in a hit. I don't know. But get them away. And I guess the second takeaway would be if you are a suspect in a major crime, don't go crazy on the internet. Hmm. <laughs> I'd say that's pretty good advice. Yeah. I mean, kind of. <laughs> I don't want to give them any hints, though. Yeah, I'm sorry, Vernon. Please go crazy on the internet. If you've murdered people, you're not invited to listen to our podcast. Yeah, sorry. if you've murdered people, please turn this off. Uh, yeah. So that's the takeaway. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at UCSF Podcast. Please send us any comments or stories you would like us to cover or any stories you may have to ucsfpodcast at gmail.com. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts or heck, any podcast service that will allow you to do this, please leave us a comment. Let us know how we're doing. Please review. Uh, yeah. And I think that's... Oh, we also have a Patreon uh, at UCSF Podcast. Please consider supporting us. It allows us to do things like get better equipment, dedicate more time to the podcast, and just really provide a better service to you guys. Um, any money you donate towards us goes to getting better equipment, upgrading our, like, my computer, so that way I can not have we my audio have cut out. Episodes three times. That <laughs> three times. Nice. I'm sorry. My audio was garbage. I didn't want to provide that to you guys. I wanted to provide you a story with better audio. Uh, and I think that's it. Do you have anything else? Uh, nope. Okay. That was a great story how interesting i hope sickening also i hope the comments didn't get too tedious like i said when i first copied it into word there was 117 pages of comments out of his mind i don't know he's out of his mind what i don't know i just i think his story is the equivalent to someone saying like there was a hit put out on our dad like that just wouldn't happen he's not involved in anything for that to happen it's just ridiculous quite ridiculous if i do say so but uh yeah that's all i have so tune in next time and goodbye goodbye